Hello, and welcome to Women's World on Radio Eye. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Today, I will be reading from Real Simple, dated December 2022, and other publications as time allows. Your host today is Anne Marie. Newspaper and magazine articles presented in Women's World are for the general information only. Radio Eye does not endorse or recommend any of the subjects mentioned. The Helpful Mind, The Upside of Feeling Down There's something to be said for embracing your not-so-chipper moments. Yes, even at this time of year. In a culture already obsessed with happiness, we're never under more pressure to be of unflagging good cheer when we are during the most wonderful time of the year with all the innocent wide-eyed tots and feeling good movies about angels sent to whisk away our earthly problems. Negative moments like grief and disappointment are obstacles to be knocked aside as we climb to the summit of bliss where we, at last, can relax at the rarefied air with the other relentlessly happy souls in Whoville. However, there's just one problem with all this non-stop positivity. It can make us miserable. The negatives of positive thinking. Of course, healthy optimism can help you help us rally to meet a challenge. You can do it. You've got this. But a strictly good vibes only mindset leaves no room for acknowledgement of pain, fear, or frustration that, let's face it, are a part of life. This can feel lonely and isolating. There is pressure to deny your real feelings about life's hard parts, says therapist Whitney Goodman, author of Toxic's Positivity. Our self-help culture insists that we are all just one positive thought away from being happy. Illness makes you an inspirational warrior. Get fired just means you have new opportunities, especially when everyone else is cheerful. There is relentless pressure to tell yourself, I have so much to feel grateful for, I don't have the right to be sad. Goodman says, I call this emotional gaslighting. Denying your feelings creates inner turmoil and shame that keep you stuck. We're wired to avoid pain, says Amelia Aldo, Ph.D., a licensed clinician, psychologist, and the founder of Together CBT in New York City. So we tend to develop strategies to numb it, filling our online cards to the brim, scrolling to infinity and beyond on TikTok, drowning our sorrows in a nice buttery Chardonnay. But when we shove down the uncomfortable emotions, they tend to bounce back up eventually, like a beach ball you're trying to keep underwater. The quest to avoid emotional discomfort is not only futile. In the long run, it worsens the pain. As with fear, we have to face it, to conquer it. One Therapy mantra, feel it to heal it. We make our negative emotions bigger by avoiding them, Aldo says. Let's say you're feeling down on yourself and you put on a cheesy holiday rom-com to cheer yourself up. You may feel better temporarily, but after the credits roll, you could still be dissatisfied and despondent. The more we avoid, the less we allow ourselves to feel our feelings, and the more scared we become of these feelings, Aldo says, it snowballs. The positives of negative thinking. Uncomfortable emotions actually perform a vital functions, says Laura Silberstein, 
PhD author of How to Be Nice to Yourself and director of for the Center of Compassion, Focus Therapy in New York City. They're like an alarm system. They point us to important information, and they organize our minds and bodies to respond. Loneliness is a hunger that pushes us off the couch and toward connection. Anger gets our dander up so we don't let ourselves be steamrolled. Research has found that people who suppress their emotions are more prone to anxiety and depression. A healthier approach, say a growing number of therapists and researchers, is to learn to listen to your emotions by cultivating greater emotional flexibility. Emotional flexibility means being able to sit with all your feelings, the good and the bad and the ugly. If you can manage that, you'll be guided by your emotions instead of being dominated by them. They become messengers, not prison guards, Silberstein says. Strategies to stretch those emotional healings. Suspend judgment. Give yourself permission to experience an emotion without the need to label it as good or bad, Jasmine Marie, founder of Black Girls Breathing, which offers breathwork classes to black women and girls. If we can honor our feelings and observe them with non-attachment, we can feel a lot less shame for having them. Approach your feelings with curiosity, Marie adds. When you're getting ready for the family's annual ugly sweater party and feeling less than festive, notice how the emotion shows up in your body. Is your stomach flipping? Are your shoulders tight with tension? Give yourself some time to think about how you feel. Emotions do pass if you allow them to. To cultivate more distance, try to imagine the feeling of just floating through you like a leaf drifting down a stream, suggests Ronald Rogg, Ph.D., psychology professor at the University of Rochester. Write it down. I love being with my family at Christmas, but I can stir up all kinds of emotions, Rog says. At the end of each day, I sit with my journal and check in with myself. I give myself, give my strong feelings space, and I write about my positive feelings toward my family, too. It helps me find compassion for myself and others. Anticipate bumps. Though they rarely make Instagram highlight reels, uncomfortable feelings are often part of even the happiest times. Acknowledging this simple reality can offer a much-needed pressure release. I do a lot of prepping ahead of time with my clients around vacations, Aldo says. Vacations are fun, but not 100% of the time. You might feel annoyed or exhausted or nervous. Understanding that it's natural to have mixed feelings about supposedly fun events means you won't be blindsided by them or dogged by guilt because you're not having the best time ever. Put your finger on it. Surprisingly, most of us are not very good at identifying our specific emotions. Aldo says, we constantly are taking black and white photographs of the very colorful scenes of our lives. In a culture where the typical response to how are you is a knee-jerk, I'm fine, emotional nuance is not necessarily our strong suit. You may be vaguely aware that you feel bad, but what flavor is that negative feeling? Resentment? Envy? Irritation? Naming your emotions transfers some of the energy from emotional side of our brain to our prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our brain, so we're able to understand our situation more rationally. Silberstein says, 
If you need help pinning down your feelings, the internet is full of lists of emotions to serve as inspiration. You can also try an app like ModeFlow. It's free on iOS and Android, which lets you track your feelings and gain insight into how situations or events affect them. Savor the good stuff. Emotional flexibility means tuning into your positive emotions as well when you're honestly feeling them. We can also cultivate our capacity for contentment, Silberstein says. She works with patients on what she calls appreciation training. We use all the senses. One day, patients make a list of all the things they appreciated through the smell, say cinnamon rolls or rain. The next day, they keep a list of tastes involving your senses, helps you fully savor positive experiences. That's one more benefit of negative emotions. They make your positive moments sweeter. There's a yin and a yang with emotions. Silberstein says, you can't have love without risking loss. You can't have gratitude without want. The end. Research has demonstrated that young people who get involved in volunteering may be more civically involved as adults. To a happy, helpful New Year. Lots of families like to give back during the holidays, but the work doesn't stop when the ball drops. Here's how to do more good in 2023 and beyond. A few summers ago, my daughter asked me two difficult questions. We were sitting in the warm dirt in our country's community garden with my mother, picking produce that would go to food banks in the area. Why do some people not have enough, she asked as we sorted tomatoes. Why do we have so much? I thought about how to answer. I mean, how do I explain our many broken systems to an eight-year-old? Do I start with a lesson in politics, agriculture, economics? I took a beat and said, there's enough food in the world. It's just not distributed fairly. Some people don't share, so we try to do our part. She accepted the answer, and we went on with our counting and bagging. For many families, volunteering, serving meals, collecting food, gathering clothes, wrapping toys is a winter tradition, and nonprofits often receive a surge of supporting of support during the holidays. I think a lot of people see their privilege. We're getting together with our families around these big tables, or we're getting presents for our friends and family, and we want to make sure other people have that opportunity, says Jennifer Benefit, Director of Education and Training at Volunteer Match, a national nonprofit that connects hopeful help- helpers with in-need organizations. She adds that nonprofits receive an even bigger surge right after New Year's due to resolutions before interest peters out in mid-January. It feels extra special, but for people who are using the services those nonprofits provide, that's just a regular old Tuesday, Bennett says. They need the same support and help on a regular day as they do on a holiday. We know that service needs to be a year-round endeavor, but it can be hard to consistently work volunteering into our busy lives. It can seem like yet another chore to add to a jam-packed schedule, particularly for those with children, says Allison Russell, Ph.D., assistant professor in the public and nonprofit management program at the University of Texas at Dallas. If you make the time, though, the effort pays off. Research has demonstrated that young people who get involved in volunteering may be more civically involved as adults, Russell says. 
So how can families help out in a way that matters and stay committed? Think about what's important to you. Food, making it, eating it, sharing it, happens to be central to my family. So that's where we focus our efforts. Whatever your family's interest, animal rights, the housing crisis, environmental concerns, chances are someone has started doing the work. Tap into local networks like nonprofits, faith institutions, and governmental organizations and learn where your talents are most needed. Some people want to go out and put boxes together and deliver them to people, and some people are really good at organizing or accounting and want to use those professional-level skills to help a nonprofit, Bennett says. The stuff that happens behind the scenes is just as important. Look where you live. Rocky Mershandandi from Hoboken, New Jersey, a small but dense city on the Hudson River, says her family's charitable work is linked to the place they call home and to the Sikh pillar of Siva, selfless, love-inspired service. Murshandandi and her family help others in all sorts of ways. They make sandwiches for people experiencing homeliness and often initiate beach cleanups along the New York, New Jersey shoreline. Satya, Manchandi's daughter, found her own calling during the early days of the pandemic. The family lives directly across from a senior housing building. Our windows look into each other, Mershandandi says. We had a conversation about the folks there, and, and it clicked for her. She understood that they were people's grandparents and that they needed to get supplies and groceries without risking their lives. We realized we could deliver those items and help in a meaningful way. Satya, now a third grader, remains involved in senior issues. She's written stories and held online story times to raise money for the center, Mershandandi says. Be realistic about how much time you can give. COVID also gave Julie Schweitzer Colazzo and her three children an opportunity to help in their area. Getting involved with our community fridges became the focal point for us, she says. Every Friday, we'd pick up surplus food from a corporate cafeteria. We'd clean the fridges and make sure they were all organized. Schweitzer Colazzo and her family were able to keep up with their work because it was a manageable task they were committed to. They moved to Mexico City this past summer and are exploring volunteering opportunities, including a community fridge program in their new home. Biting off more than you can chew, on the other hand, isn't helpful to anyone, especially if you sign up to do something and then don't follow through. The best amount of time to volunteer is whatever amount of time works for your schedule, Bennett says. So if an hour a week is something you can do, that's amazing. If it's one afternoon a quarter, that's also amazing. Leave your ego out of it. Charitable work isn't about you and other people don't exist to make you feel good. Evelyn Shoup, a parent of three in Portland, Oregon, is guided by a simple principle, giving not out of a sense of our abundance and someone else's scarcity or a kind saviorism, but just giving, she says. Shoup and her family donate hand-me-downs to their school district clothes closet, and she tries to have a few dollars on hand to give people in her community without judgment about the merit, she says. Her second grader once questioned her for not giving money to a man standing on the side of the freeway. She has this sense of justice, and she's seen me give, so she feels empowered to ask that 
Shoop said proudly. Now that my daughter is almost eleven, her world is much bigger, and she has even more questions. We continue to talk and to contribute to our community as much as we can. We make regular grocery runs for our local food banks. We prepare and serve meals in our community kitchen. And when the weather thaws each year, we return to the garden. I worry sometimes about the weight of our conversations because I think the heaviness is counterbalanced by the feeling of empowerment that working with others to solve problems can provide. It's comforting to know we can do something to help. We can chip away. We can do our part. What's the weirdest gift you've ever received? Here's our, here are some examples that are really cute. A carved giraffe knick-knack with an extra long neck for our first paper anniversary. Took me a while to realize it holds two rolls of toilet paper. A can of creamed corn. Happy birthday to me. For Christmas when I was 15, my aunt sent me a t-shirt with my school picture on it. My husband received a luggage scale from my mom. For years we thought it was so odd, and it just sat in our closet. Eventually, we came around and realized it's the most useful gift ever. Everyone borrows it from us. Now that my mom is gone, we cherish it. A white chocolate artificial hip. A real pig's tail. My 90-year-old aunt loved to see me scream. <laughs> we got a large chandelier for our wedding gift. It seemed like it might have been stolen. A go-girl from my brother. What is a go-girl, you ask? Well, it's a silicone funnel that allows women to pee standing up for convenience on the go. Pina colada flavored body mousse. From my brother. This was back in the 80s when everyone used hair mousse, which is what he thought it was. He got it at Spencer's, and it was definitely for something else. Awkward. Next one. I got a stuffed turtle. That's right. Taxidermy style. From my sister and her husband when they went to Acapulco on their honeymoon. Well, this is a good one. A dear friend gave me a big light green wine bottle with miniature mice playing tennis in it for Christmas one year. This next article is about um, Christmas holiday season, about eating, since this is, uh, I'm reading from December of 2022, so I think it could really help all of us now. It's a holiday tradition. You lean back in your dining chair in a mild food coma, as glazed and inert as a honey-baked ham. You can't eat another bite. You may never eat again. And then someone says the magic word, pie, that golden crust, the tantalizing aroma of brown sugar and pecans. Yes, you'll have some pie. There's a scientific term for what you're experiencing, and it's not gluttony. That's the judgy one. It's called hedonic hunger. The desire to eat for pleasure as opposed to consuming the calories your body needs for energy. Why are we so drawn to foods our systems don't need? Because fatty, buttery, creamy, sweet and savory deliciousness has a powerful effect on the brain's reward system. So our heads nod yes, even when our stomachs say nah. Your brain is on mashed potatoes. 
Remember the last time you ate so much steamed broccoli you could barely get off the couch but just kept going back for more? Probably not. Hedonic hunger tends to be activated by calorie-dense foods that are pleasurable to eat. In other words, anything fatty, fried, salty, or sweet. When our ancestors were scrambling for nuts and berries, hedonic hunger wasn't a thing. But then someone figured out how to turn milk into butter, and someone else figured out how that potatoes taste amazing when you cut them into sticks and drop them into a vat of hot fat, and everything changed. Over the course of our evolution, our taste range has gone from this tastes awful, but will keep me alive, to this tastes good, holy cow, this is so delicious. It makes it hard for us to hold back, says Michael Lowe, Ph.D., psychology professor at Drexel University, who coined the term hedonic hunger to distinguish it from homeostatic hunger, which stems from your body's need for energy, i.e. that rumbling in your stomach, when you haven't eaten in hours. When we eat delicious food, we get a surge of neurotransmitter dopamine, which is part of the reward system in our brain. Lowe says, it makes us feel good, so we keep eating the food to get that feeling. This may help explain our time-honored impulse to try to fight sadness with brownies. Eventually, Lowe adds, the brain changes, so even anticipating eating the food causes a dopamine rush. This is why I call it hedonic hunger. It's a hunger for more pleasure, not for more calories. Why we all scream for ice cream. Unlike eat-to-live homeostatic hunger, which our bodies alert us to, hedonic hunger is largely prompted by external cues like the sight of glistening chocolate sauce, the scent of a fresh pizza, or simply plopping down in front of the TV if that's your favorite place to chill with ice cream. I walk by Starbucks and can smell that pumpkin latte from outside. Plus, there are pictures everywhere, which makes it hard to resist, says Subabi Utani, Ph.D., assistant professor of nutrition at San Diego State University School of Exercise and Nutritional Sciences, who studies how smell and taste, perception, influence, diet, and weight gain, add cooking shows, fast food signs, and enticing holiday commercials, she says, and you have almost omnipresent triggers for cravings. What else makes us more inclined to eat for pleasure? Having a bounty of options on hand. The more we can choose from, the more we're likely to consume, a phenomenon known as the variety effect. And, working alongside it like a skillful sous chef, is sensory-specific sadi. Allow us to explain. Imagine you eat all the brisket and green beans you think you can hold, and the sheer delight of those first few bites has faded. But then cheesecake shows up, promising to tickle a different set of taste buds, and you suddenly have room. If this manipulation is starting to make you feel like a lab rat, or Templeton, the rat from Charlotte's Web, gorging himself at the county fair, don't feel bad. Turns out even nutrition scientists are susceptible. If I'm at a hotel buffet, I may start with the dish that looks most appealing. But eventually, sensory-specific sadi kicks in, Bhutani says. And then I look at ten other highly palatable things I can try, and since I don't feel satiated by those yet, 
I'll go ahead and put them on my plate. If you tend to spend the holiday having a little more mac and cheese than a cookie, then reheating some stuffing, then popping a few chocolates, that's the variety effect in action. The myth of self-control. Most of us are surrounded by the same sensory cues, but some of us are more compelled to follow through on our hedonic drives. That has nothing to do with the lack of willpower, Lowe said. According to a 2016 study in the Journal of Nutrition, when offered appetizing food, people who reported that they often experience hedonic hunger showed more activity in the reward areas of their brain than the peers who were less compelled by cravings. Research suggests there's a complicated interplay between dopamine, the hunger hormones, ghrelin and leptin, and our endocannabinoid system, a vast collection of neurotransmitters that help control eating as well as functions like memory, emotional processing, and sleep. The fact that some people have a greater neural response than others seems to be partially due to the differences in DNA, Lowe says. It's clear that someone's genetic makeup can predispose them to problems controlling food intake. But this is a frontier area. One thing that's not necessarily tied to hedonic hunger, body mass, and weight. In the Journal of Nutrition study, high hedonic activity wasn't linked to a particular level of BMI. The analysts of 50 studies conducted by Lowe and colleagues did find a slight correlation between experienced hedonic hunger and being overweight or, or obese, but it was less than they expected. Dialing down hedonic hunger. Of course, there's nothing wrong with hungering for delicious food. By all means, rejoice and be grateful to spend the holiday eating meals you love with people you love. But if you're consistently wishing you could reduce the cravings a bit, here are a few ideas that may help soothe the neurochemical urge to eat all the things. They may sound like often cited chestnuts, mmm, roast chestnuts, but that's because they've been repeatedly proven by research. Aim for seven to eight hours of sleep. Research has shown that the reward regions of the brain become more sensitive to cravings when people are sleep-deprived, getting less than six hours of sleep a night. So the more tired you are, the more easily you'll give in to foods high in sugar and fat. In a 2019 study, Bhutani and her colleagues found that just one night of sleep deprivation left subjects more susceptible to the siren song of tempting food found that just one night of sleep deprivation left subjects more susceptible to the siren song of tempting food. Manage stress through an isolated high-stress episode like a bad breakup can reduce hedonic eating. Chronic stress has shown to do the opposite. As you know, if you've ever munched your way through an intense period at work, if you think stress is leading you to eat more than you need, consider passing up the vending machine for a walk, a session with meditation app, or yoga class. It may not give you the same immediate kick as a bag of Funyuns, but future you will feel better for it. Feel better for it. Picture yourself in the Bahamas or Disneyland or wherever you would love to be at the moment of your craving. 
The idea is to imagine engaging in something that's not related to food, but equally pleasurable, Bhutani says. In a 2021 study, participants with self-reported chocolate cravings were asked to imagine that their favorite chocolate was sitting in front of them, then to either let their minds wander or visualize sitting peacefully by a stream in a forest watching leaves float by. Afterwards, those in the latter group said they felt less compelled to gobble the chocolate. This concludes Woman's World for today. Your reader has been Anne Marie. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions concerning this program, please call us in our Lexington studios at 859-422-6390. Thank you for listening, and please stay tuned for Diabetes and You next on Radio Eye.